And now, business games. Welcome to Business Games podcast where we learn how to apply critical thinking and game theory to process information and get better at making decisions under uncertainty. This is a companion episode to a blog post from season three. The blog post is about New York Times and it's called NY Times Disinformation Central? The subtitle is How I Lost Trust in the Western Mainstream Media and What to Do About It. Now I'm doing something different this season and I am going to not write a script for this, but instead what I'll do is I'll go through the article and cover half of it. The how I lost trust in the Western mainstream media part of it. What to do about it will be uh, next episode. It will be a little bit more scripted. So, a word of warning. The New York Times piece looks at their coverage of the Ukrainian conflict. So if you're too emotional about this conflict and or you trust the Western mainstream media and you do not want to hear any arguments against it, this is your time to not listen further. Okay. So in this piece, I will not be using anything from the Russian media. I will only look at the New York Times, other mainstream Western media outlets, and I will also use some of the more prestigious Ukrainian sources for my takedown of the New York Times. And the takedown will cover four things. So it will be done in four parts. Number one, the unprovable and unproven evidence-free allegations of Russian disinformation presented as fact. Now, I'm not saying that Russians do not participate in disinformation campaigns. I am merely stating that a lot of these allegations are unproven and indeed unprovable, yet they're presented as fact. Then I'll look at the narrative change from 2014 to 2022, which is easily tractable if you compare New York Times writing across time, you will see a dramatic change in the way that the events in Ukraine are portrayed. Then I will look at the uh, lies, the outright provable lies presented as fact, uh, using an example of the alleged systemic rape by the Russian soldiers presented as fact, even though it's based on pure and easily discoverable fabrication. And finally, I will look at several pieces written about, written or discussed about the New York Times specifically, including a bit from Farnham Street's podcast, The Knowledge Project, where Balaji Srinivasan critiques NYT and media overall. Okay, so let's go. And you will hear me scrolling a little bit, so there will be some mouse noise. Now introduction, then the primary purpose of this takedown, okay? So the primary purpose of this takedown is to show that Western media lies and also participates in disinformation campaigns and misinformation campaigns. I will attack the dominant narrative of the Ukraine conflict for this specific purpose. But the purpose is not to whitewash the Kremlin. Okay? So I believe that to solve a complex problem, we must first understand the complex problem objectively, then find a solution. If you don't have an objective understanding, no solution is possible. And our current mainstream coverage is so terrible, it is prohibiting us from objective understanding of the situation and thus from finding a viable and just solution. Okay? And any delay in finding a viable and just solution prolongs and exacerbates an already terrible humanitarian catastrophe, both directly in Ukraine as well as increasingly internationally, especially in third world countries due to food and energy complications that happen as a direct result of this conflict, and in particular of the Western sanctions against Russia, which are hitting both food and energy prices, where of course uh, countries in the global south suffer disproportionately. Okay, so the purpose is to facilitate a more objective understanding of the conflict, such as we can find a viable and just solution faster in order to minimize human suffering. That's the primary reason of highlighting this, highlighting the issues and the 
misinformation narratives and the disinformation narratives in the Western coverage of the conflict. Okay, I'm not condoning military actions of any kind. So quite explicitly denounce systemic killing of civilians and making conscious choices that put them in harm's way. But by this logic, we must also, in fact, I believe, first and foremost, condemn the Kiev regime for killing 14,000 and upwards of 14,000 of its own people. And I'm including the 4,000 soldiers and the rest of civilians in Donbass between 2014 and 2022. These are UN numbers, and the civilians also cover the defenders of Donbass who took up arms against the Kiev aggression. And we'll get to that in a second. So the civil war in Ukraine started with the bloody coup of 2014. So if we want to stop the humanitarian catastrophe, we must start at the root of it. Okay? Anything else is both dishonest and unhelpful. So back to disinformation. Okay? Why am I throwing the challenge to the likes of New York Times? Based on what evidence? Okay, so let's look at the Russian disinformation campaign. And that is the, uh, not the campaign of actual Russian disinformation, but the campaign against it. And the campaign of treating everything as Russian disinformation. So for this, I look at a 2016 article by New York Times, which is called A Powerful Russian Weapon, The Spread of False Stories. And I'm using this as an example article most description of the Russian disinformation in the media that I came across follows a similar pattern. It's just basically a lot of, well, I'll, we'll cover what it is. So you, you, this is an example. It's not a one-off article. It's an example article. Okay. So does New York Times make a convincing case for Russian disinformation? Okay. Let's have a look. So if I read the article uncritically, and this is the thing, so this is how Russian information works. I'm citing the article. Experts have detected a characteristic pattern that they tie to Kremlin-generated disinformation campaigns. The dynamic is always the same. It originates somewhere in Russia, on Russian state media sites, or different websites, or somewhere in that kind of context, says Anders Lindberg, a Swedish journalist and lawyer. Okay, so if I read this, I immediately go, okay, so well, there's no evidence of anything but it's a pattern that something originates somewhere in Russia, and then what? Okay, so the message is that if something originates in Russia, it's false and maliciously so. To set this dynamic, the New York Times article um, starts with a series of what we're told are false reports that were disseminated in Sweden about possible concerns or outcomes, concerning outcomes of Sweden's military partnership with NATO. These false reports we're told they're false. We're not told why. We're just told they're false. Let's assume they're false, right? But I'm just saying that we're not provided any evidence that they are in fact false. They're just the article says, well, they're false and that's it. So what were those? Those were the alliance would stockpile secret nuclear weapons on Swedish soil. NATO could attack Russia from Sweden without government approval. NATO soldiers immune from prosecution could rape Swedish women without fear of criminal charges. These were the reports that were being disseminated in Sweden, or these were the concerns that were being dis, um, spread in Sweden. We're told they're false, we're not provided any claim, any, any reason to think they're false or not false, we don't know anything about their falsehood. I don't want to say that they are correct, that these outcomes are correct, I'm merely stating that to me, if you're saying something is obvious, is false, you cannot just say, well, it's obviously false, right? If you are a, um, a journalist, well, you could say that there is no proof of it. You could say that, but that's not what New York Times is doing. New York Times is presenting a series of uh, potentially ridiculously sounding things and saying, well, they're all false. Uh, it's called a straw man argument. If you're presenting a series of ridiculously sounding things in order to tear it down, it's a straw man argument. It's usually not a good argument. So New York Times present them as self-evidently false, says so, and I could question the self-evident falsehood of these things, but that's not the point. Let's assume that they're false, okay? What does Russia have to do with this? Okay, so the next quote from the article is really telling. The article uh, continues to say, as often happens in such cases, 
Swedish officials were never able to pin down the source of the false reports. But they, comma, numerous analysts and experts in American and European intelligence, point to Russia as the prime suspect. Noting that preventing NATO expansion is a centerpiece of the foreign policy of President Vladimir Putin, who invaded Georgia in 2008 largely to forestall that possibility. Okay. I, I, I don't know what to say. So, uh, here is a logical sequence. Here's a list of apparently ridiculous statements. We're told all of them are fake, with no evidence. We're also told that there are not... Nobody is able to pin down the sources of these things or link them to Russia. And therefore, the outcome, the culprit must be Russia? I mean, this... Come on. So, I... I, I, I it's ridiculous. So, if this is what passes for journalism, then I don't know why New York Times are uh, getting money. And, by the way, as a full disclosure, I am a subscriber to New York Times. I do actually pay them. Um, I, I don't know why. Anyway... Uh, so, as a key evidence, we're given the character of, of Gleb Pavlovsky and his statement. So, Gleb writes, Moscow views world affairs as a system of special operations and very sincerely believes that it itself is an object of Western special operations, said Gleb Pavlovsky, who helped establish the Kremlin's information machine before 2008. I am sure that there are a lot of centers, some linked to the state, that are involved in inventing these kinds of fake stories. So says Gleb, who's presented as a as an expert on this. Okay, is he a credible expert? Okay, so let's look up his um, his biography. A Wikipedia lookup states that he was an advisor to Putin between 1996 and 2011 when he was fired. He also became a critic of the Russian government. Okay, when he says, I'm sure there are a lot of centers, some linked to the states that were involved in inventing these kind of fake stories, well, that, that is hardly a conclusive evidence of anything. I can also be sure of a lot of things. If you're presenting an expert who just says stuff, who is furthermore motivated to say stuff because he was fired, and I could easily claim that uh, I'm sure he's just a, an aggrieved former employee who just wants to take down his former employer, I'm sure of it. I don't know. It sounds plausible. Uh, why am I supposed to believe this person? Okay, so we have given in evidence a bunch of statements that nobody can relate to Russia, which apparently is a dead giveaway that they did in fact originate in Russia. Then we're told by a guy fired by the Russian government that he's sure there are a lot of centers that do this sort of thing. Okay. Now, to make things even more convincing, the New York Times piece says, uh, brings in the tragedy of the Malaysian Airlines MH17 with, with another broad brush statement like, the cloud of stories helped veil the simple truth that poorly trained insurgents had accidentally downed a plane with a missile supplied by Russia. Okay, so this was written in 2016. The court case hadn't even started, I think. Definitely wasn't finished, because the court case was finished only in November 18, 2022. So before anything was really proven, to say things like the cloud of stories helped veil the simple truth that poorly trained insurgents had accidentally down the plane, that's presuming quite a lot. The simple truth is not truth until proven beyond any reasonable doubt. And in fact... There is a really good article by Professor Oliver, Professor Emeritus Oliver Boyd Barrett. Uh, he's a professor emeritus at Bowling Green State University, Ohio, and at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona in the U.S., who is an expert in international media, news, and propaganda. And he wrote an article a couple of years ago, I believe, uh, called The MH17 Trial, The Dangers of Presuming the Fairness of a Geopolitically Driven Exercise. My point was that back then in 2016, there is no simple truth. In fact, even after the conviction, I believe that there cannot be a simple truth because there are 
so many issues with that trial, so many issues with that investigation, that it would normally be like, like if it were any sort of normal criminal case investigation uh, in the US, I'm pretty sure that the defense attorneys would have been able to throw it out, uh, or at least there would have been a mistrial. Uh, so there is a post-November 22 update that I wrote, because I wrote the, I had written this article originally in uh, July. Uh, so by then, the court case had not finished yet. Now, of course, the court case had completed, and they uh, did uh, find some people guilty, and they did not point the finger at the Russian government, so they didn't find convincing involvement of the Russian government, so they stopped with the um, uh, several um, Donbass defenders being accused and being found guilty. Now, just to show you what the Russians think about it, I'll read a little snippet from a Russian Telegram channel. Um, and the snippet goes like this. In December 2021, the Dutch prosecutor's office issued an indictment demanding that all four defendants be sentenced to life imprisonment for the destruction of an aircraft as part of an organized group, which led to the death of 298 people and the murder of passengers on board. Ukraine refused to provide data from its radars, and the United States did not transfer satellite images to the investigation, where, as they claim, the moment of the missile launch is visible. The line of state prosecution is based on the testimony of exclusively anonymous witnesses. We do not expect anything good, quote-unquote, from the Dutch court. That was written in the lead-up to the announcement of the verdict on the Russian Telegram channel. Now, if Ukraine refused to provide the data from its raiders and the United States did not transfer satellite images to the investigation where, as they claim, the moment of the missile launch is visible, to me that sounds very much like an investigation into the Nord Stream attack where everybody said that they figured out what it is or who perpetrated the attack, but for the reasons of state security they couldn't share the resources, the, the, the outcomes. Now, if the Russians did it, right, if there is a clear indication that indeed Russians were behind the Nord Stream attack or the, the missile launch was from the Russian, the separatist-controlled area, the, the Donbass defendant control area, wouldn't the United States eagerly share that? So if they're not sharing that, to me that sounds very much like you know there there's something there that would obviously jeopardize the case or point at a different culprit so i'll let you ponder this but to me the um, I, I would highly recommend the article the mh17 trial the dangers of presuming the fairness of a geopolitically driven enterprise and um, as far as i'm concerned i am not convinced for the for these reasons that it was in fact a fair trial an unbiased trial from that point of view there are so many issues with it and so i do not believe that the poor relatives of of the poor people who died there could get closure from this okay anyway so what is the purpose of Russian disinformation according to NY Times, right? This is what they write in their 2016 article. So we're back to disinformation. The fundamental purpose of disinformatia or Russian disinformation, experts said, is to undermine the official version of events. Even the very idea that there is a true version of events. And foster a kind of policy paralysis. Okay. So... Am I to believe that we define Russian disinformation as any questioning of the official version of events? Why? Does this sound normal to you? So I thought that the purpose of journalism is to question the official version of events. What's an official version of events anyway? Official according to who? If the government is telling me something, and I'm a journalist, I always believed that this is what we were presented as in popular culture as well as you know, various definitions that it is a job of a of a journalist is to question that but the new york times is saying that questioning the official purpose uh, the official version of events is in fact russian disinformation that's the purpose 
That's that doesn't make any sense to me. What's what's it said about the uh, media that they should uh, comfort the oppressed or, or comfort the disturbed and, and and disturb the comfortable? Well, questioning the official version of events is disturbing the comfortable. You you must by definition question the official version. It is if if you just accept it, then the the, the officials could say anything. So how is this Russian disinformation? I don't understand. And the problem is that, as New York Times, if you're taking that stance that any questioning of the official version of events is Russian disinformation, it sort of undermines your whole claim to being a credible journalistic source and the promoter of the truth. Because questioning the official is like, this is how you get to the truth, is by questioning. Is how you get around the lies that of any official is by questioning the official version of events. But if you do that, New York Times says you're immediately a Russian propagandist or a Russian disinformation expert. Does this make any sense? And again, I'm not discussing the veracity of existence or non-existence of such operations in Russia. They might exist, they might not. I'm eagerly believing that they do exist. Now, their scale is unclear. In case of Russia, their relative importance is unclear. I would claim that their relative importance as compared to the US and NATO-based PSYOPs or even civilian undertakings such as Cambridge Analytica is likely minuscule. And the reason why I believe that is, so first of all, we know that US and NATO also do this. And we know it from the uh, Stanford research, which was published this year, Stanford and Graphica, where they found five years of various campaigns targeting Russia, China and Iran and promoting the United States actions as good and the actions of the official nemeses of the United States as bad. So we know that these things exist. So we know that US government participates in exactly the same thing, in that which they accuse Russia of doing. So I'm inclined to believe that A, everybody lies, and B, everybody participates in this sort of thing. But I would also uh, like to claim that given that a lot of this disinformation is taking place on social media, and given that social media, by and large, is domiciled in the Silicon Valley and other NATO co- uh, countries, why would we believe that Russian disinformation is so much more dangerous than the disinformation of the US? US controls the choke points. They have, the Silicon Valley has the best coders U.S. and Britain, I believe, have the best marketers in the world. If you're combining the best resources of who is capable to carry out such disinformation campaigns, and you have evidence of these things happening in the U.S., and the U.S. controlling the choke points, as well as having the best resources, I I would claim that the U.S. disinformation campaigns are much more dangerous from that point of view and much more impactful than the ones done by Russia. Now, again, I'm not actually discussing the veracity or existence of these things, but I'm saying if they do exist, I kind of believe they do, then the U.S. and NATO-based PSYOPs are, I think, more prevalent in this space. But regardless of the veracity, I'm merely pointing out the New York Times' presentation of evidence-free allegations as fact, and the insistence on there being only one true version of events the official one. And judging by their marketing campaign where they present themselves as the truth, that one version of events is the true version of events is theirs. So if you believe that such a smear campaign masquerading as journalism is good, or if if this is indeed journalism, then hopefully this starts changing your opinion a little bit. I don't believe this is journalism. I believe this is propaganda. And if we want to throw propaganda at the countries that we dislike, Russia, China, Iran, then I'm going to show you that the, the, the countries or the, the respectable organizations that we like, such as New York Times, are participating in exactly the same propaganda. And I would claim they're doing it better, and it's believed by more people. It's actually more effective propaganda than anything that Russia puts out. 
Okay, so let's look at the uh, New York Times narratives and, and facts, right? So part two, 2014 coverage versus 2022 coverage. So how the Donbass defenders from 2014 and bitterness towards Kiev, killing Donbass civilians, how they changed, how that disappeared from 2022 coverage. So here's an article which was written in 2014. It's called Enmity and Civilian Toll Rise in Ukraine While Attention is Diverted. So I'm going to again focus on this article. It was one of several articles, but, but this one in particular. Uh, because to me, it's actually a very good example of a more or less balanced coverage of the Donbass situation that New York Times did way back in 2014. They can't do it. They're really good people. And it's just to highlight how it changed, okay? So here is the a snippet. The Ukrainian military's advances to reclaim territory from rebel control have come at a steep human cost. According to a United Nations count released on Monday, 799 civilians have been killed since mid-April, when Ukraine began to battle insurgents here, and at least 2,155 have been wounded. The killings have left the population in eastern Ukraine embittered toward Ukraine's pro-Western government and are helping to spur recruitment for the pro-Russian militias. In time, even if the Ukrainian military routes the rebels and retakes the east, the civilian deaths are likely to leave deep resentment here and could complicate reconciliation efforts for decades. So that's a snippet from 2014 article. If you compare this article to the likes of, when I give a bunch of articles, the coal dust and methanes below, Russian bombs above, the battle for Ukraine's Donbass will be remembered for, for its brutality, Zelensky says, and so on and so forth, from mid-2022, early in mid-2022, you will have a completely changed tenor and a completely changed narrative here is another article 2022 just to highlight the difference in the publication and the relationship to the actions the article is called to push back russians that's already from 2022 to push back russians ukrainians hit a village with cluster munitions okay where we read these types of internationally banned weapons have been repeatedly used by the Russian military since it invaded Ukraine in February. Human rights groups have denounced their use. Western leaders have linked their presence to a bevy of war crimes allegations leveled at Moscow. But the cluster munition that landed next to Mr. Doroshenko's house was not fired by Russian forces. Based on evidence reviewed by the New York Times during a visit to the area, it is very likely to have been launched by the Ukrainian troops who were trying to retake the area. A little bit later in the article. But the Ukrainians' decision to saturate their own village with a cluster munition that has the capacity to haphazardly kill innocent people underscores their strategic calculation. This is what they needed to do to retake their country, no matter the cost. Okay, so let's just re re recoup, right? So process that, what we just read. Everything from the New York Times. So we went from Ukraine kills nearly a thousand civilians daily, leading to increased bitterness that will last decades and push more and more Donbass people to take up arms to defend their homeland... We went from that narrative in 2014 all the way to Russia's brutal war against Ukraine narrative in 2022, which furthermore excuses the Ukrainians shooting cluster munitions, which are banned and could kill anybody, and saturating with these cluster munitions their own villages because they don't care about the cost of retaking land. The cost is obviously the human cost. Now, what happened in the, in, the, in, the, in the intervening eight years, since 2014? We, we had what? Reconciliation? Peace? Or have we indeed had more civilian killings by Ukraine and more Donbass resistance? What, it disappeared? 
So if Ukraine was killing a lot of people in 2014, which New York Times wrote was leading to more resistance and more bitterness, and continued doing this for eight years, don't you think that from the Donbass situation, just I'm not talking about the Russia, I'm talking about the, the Donbass militias, the defenders of Donbass, because these are the people who used to be civilians, they took up arms to defend their own homes because Ukraine was killing people there. Are you not looking at this conflict from a completely different lens? That lens being people defending their homes? Because the truth that the New York Times were writing in 2014 hasn't disappeared anywhere. How could you go from a relatively balanced description of the situation to completely, completely one-sided narrative that is so blindingly one-sided that it's impossible not to notice this change? And you even keep on writing articles where everything that Russia is doing is, is terrible and, and a war crime. But whenever Ukraine is shooting at its own civilians using cluster munitions, it's presented as a, oh, what else can they do? Have to retake the, the territory, no matter the cost. They made this calculation. Now, I could even claim that because, I, because anybody knowing the situation would know that the vast majority of the on-the-ground troops were not even Russians. They were Donbas militias. The vast majority of people fighting in Donbas were from Donbas. They were Donbas defenders. The only thing that Russia, until the partial military mobilization that the Russians have done in September, until then, for the first six, seven months, the vast majority of on the ground troops were Donbas militias. Russia was covering them with artillery support and air support. But the people on the ground, the people dying were Donbas militias that we know from New York Times took up arms to defend their homes against the Kiev regime. Wouldn't a better framing of the situation be the Donbas militias are finally retaking their homes? What do you think is more accurate? Why do we have a glaring lack of balance in reporting in 2022? Why the abrupt, abrupt narrative change? These are the questions that we should be asking of the New York Times or anybody who presents this. Because clearly the situation had been presented differently. Now, another glaring change, okay? The New York Times Nazi Disappearance Act, let's call it that way. Although that, that also, that, that, literally covers all of the Western media. Again, New York Times is just an example, but everybody did that. Way back in 2014, uh, the likes of BBC, The Guardian, and so on and so forth uh, had been covering the neo-Nazi issue and the neo-Nazi influence on the Maidan. Now, New York Times did one... one they even go... They, they go beyond that. They talk, and in the early February, they write about dangerous nationalists. Here's an article from February the 11th, when New York Times, which the New York Times published, that's called Armed Nationalists in Ukraine Pose a Threat Not Just to Russia. And the subtitle of that, or the summary, was Kiev is encouraging the arming of nationalist paramilitary groups to thwart a Russian invasion, but they could also destabilize the government if it agrees to a peace deal they reject. So we've got armed nationalists who pose a threat to the Ukrainian government and to a peace deal. And then on July the 4th, so that was in February, July, in July, New York Times tweeted this out. A central theme of Kremlin propaganda about the war in Ukraine is that the country's government and culture are filled with dangerous Nazis. These false claims started on state media, but smaller news sites have gone to amplify the messages. So again, we see that Something that New York Times itself was writing in February, which is the danger of the nationalists, which called them ultra-nationalists, and in fact, nationalist paramilitary groups, somehow became a Kremlin propaganda by July. So were New York Times participating in Kremlin propaganda when they wrote about the dangerous uh, you know, nationalists? Now... Oh, oh, what are we doing? This, this, is, this is ridiculous. 
Now, you also have the New York Times guest writers who go from my family members hated the neo-Nazis and the US-backed Kiev government to Euromaidan uprising demanding partnership with the EU. So there is a guy called Lev Galinkin, who is a Ukrainian-American writer and journalist born in Kharkov in the east of Ukraine. And he wrote a memoir uh, called The Backpack, a Bear and Eight Crates of Vodka. And he wrote uh, for The Nation in 2020 and before that and so on and so forth. And um, there is a piece in The Nation which is called Stephen F. Kong Kept the Faith. Here's what Galinkin is writing. In the spring of 2014, a war broke out in my homeland of Ukraine. It was a horrible war in a bitterly divided nation, which turned eastern Ukraine into a bombed-out wasteland. But that's not how it was portrayed in America. Because millions of eastern Ukrainians were against the US-backed government, their opinions were inconvenient for the West. Washington needed a clean story about Ukraine fighting the Kremlin. As a result, U.S. media avoided reporting about the wrong, quote-unquote, half of the country. Twenty-plus million people were written out of the narrative as if they never existed. I tried to explain to American friends what was happening, but quickly realized that ultimately, even friends believe what they read in the newspapers, and the newspapers were pushing the Washington line. Except for Stephen Cohen. Steve was the only major figure in America who insisted on remembering the Russian-speaking Ukrainians who, like my family members, distrusted and hated the new Kiev government. He spoke of neo-Nazi paramilitaries who fought for the US-backed government, committing war crimes against civilians in eastern Ukraine. He spoke the truth, regardless of how unwieldy it was. That's what Lev Galinkin wrote in 2020. And he wrote a number of such articles. It's not the only one. Now, here's the same Lev Galinkin already in 2022, writing a guest essay for the New York Times entitled, uh, sorry, titled, The Ukraine of My Childhood is Being Erased. Here's what Lev Galinkin writes in 2022. In 2004, the Orange Revolution saw hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians reverse the outcome of a fraudulent presidential election. In the winter of 2013-14, millions joined the Euromaidan uprising, demanding that Ukraine enter into a partnership agreement with the European Union. Shortly after, Russia illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula, while Russian-backed separatists launched an anti-Euromaidan uprising in the east of the country. I wonder if our old pockmarked apartment building in Kharkiv has new scars, if it'll even be standing tomorrow. My American friends were emailing and texting, expressing sympathy, asking what they could do. I didn't respond to some of them. I couldn't. America wants solutions and happy endings, and I couldn't tell my friends the reality. There's nothing they or I can do. But that isn't entirely true. President Vladimir Putin of Russia, who denies that Ukraine is a sovereign nation, is waging far more than a physical war. He, like his predecessors in the Kremlin, is working to erase the very concept of Ukraine from existence. With each new report of a Russian bombing, I find myself becoming more Ukrainian, seizing the identity that first the Soviet Union, and now Russia, has long fought to suppress. Now, the same person who between 2014 and 2020, at least, spoke the truth, that's his words, about the neo-Nazis hating the Kiev regime, US-backed government, and how the US media avoided reporting about the wrong half of the country, effectively writing out 20-plus million people out of the narrative as if they never existed, and praising Stephen Cohen for speaking out, the same person, in just two years later, himself, writing half a country, 20 plus million people, out of the narrative as if they never existed. But this time using New York Times' platform. I, even, even his description of his communication with the American friends around the war is completely different. Could be a different war, but it's just, I don't understand how a self-respecting human being, a writer, could do that. There is nothing new that he learned in 2022 that he did not know in many years. He was a, a, an, an established person, an adult with well-formed opinions, writing stuff 
between 2014 and 2020, at least, possibly 2021. I haven't checked. And all of a sudden, overnight, he changes from speaking out for the Southeast, speaking about a deeply divided country, to now, he's now pushing a narrative about a completely uniform Ukrainian identity. These two things cannot coexist in the mind of, a, of, of, of the same person. It could be that he learned something, but I, I, I would claim that he had six years between 2014 and 2020 to learn something. And it is very unlikely that he learned something fundamentally different in the subsequent two years because he was, he was, he's from there. He's, he speaks the languages. He has family members. He was talking about, he was writing one thing. Then why, why the change? So the narrative change is, is, is real, and if you believe in the journalism as an objective exercise, you will not see this as the same thing. You will not see these narratives as belonging within the same universe. Both of them cannot be true. So either everybody was lying prior to February 2022, February 24, 2022, or they're lying now. Both narratives cannot exist in, in, in the mind of the same person. But it actually gets worse. Okay? So verifiable lies is exemplified by the systemic rape as a weapon hoax. Okay? So in April 2022, Western mainstream media, and I'm focusing on the English language outlets, uh, such as CNN, The Guardian, Mirror, Spectator, Huffington Post, etc., ran a story under a variation of um, Russia uses rape as a weapon with quotes like these. And this one is, um, I've taken it from uh, HuffPost. Russian soldiers told them they would rape them to the point where they wouldn't want sexual contact with any man to prevent them from having Ukrainian children, said Ukraine's ombudsman for human rights, Ludmila Denisova. Now, post mid-April, these articles are quoting Denisova or her daughter Kvitko. Now, before mid-April, and I provide nine or ten articles uh, like this. You, you can see they, they're all titled pretty much, they all have the same title, they all have the same narrative. Um, five of them have Denisova or her daughter, and they work together, uh, although it never says that um, they're related because they have different surnames. And then after uh, before mid-April, uh, there is no mention of Denisova, but... Some side the Ukrainian foreign, foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, and Human Rights Watch. And Kvitko was working for UNICEF. And all the details and the narratives are exactly the same. So it sounds very much like uh, they were coming from the same source. Okay. Now, later, after a few months, New York Times joined the discourse. On June 29, 2022, they wrote an article, quite a large article, called After Rapes by Russian Soldiers, A Painful Quest for Justice. And uh, New York Times write the following paragraphs. Russian forces retreated from the areas surrounding Kiev, including Victoria's village, throughout March. In the weeks that followed, Ukrainian authorities were inundated with accounts of atrocities, according to Lyudmila Denisova, who was serving as the country's top human rights advocate at the time. From April 1 until May 15, her office's psychological help hotline received 1,500 calls from people, speaking, uh, from people seeking assistance to cope with sexual crimes, torture and abuse, said Alexandra Kvitko, who manages the hotline. A mother called to report that her nine months old had been raped with a candle, Ms. Kvitko said. They tied the mother up and forced her to watch. The mother had called saying that she wanted to take her child and jump out of the window. Ms. Kvitko said that it was her job to give the mother a reason to live. The hotline has registered hundreds of calls about rape, but many of the victims were in a state of fragile mental health, Ms. Kvitko said, and were not ready to provide official testimony to the authorities. So these are indeed horrific crimes with a scale and brutality that would make these crimes some of the worst crimes in history. Except they're all completely made up. Now, let's have a look. Let's look up Denisova and see why she's no longer Ukraine's top human rights advocate. 
because the New York Times says that she was back then. So from CNN in May 31, Ukrainian parliament dismisses human, dismisses human rights ombudsman. So Ukrainian parliament dismissed her, okay? Ms. Denisova has hardly exercised her authority to organize humanitarian corridors, protect and exchange prisoners, oppose the deportation of people and children from the occupied territories and other human rights activities, said Pavlo Frolov, a Ukrainian minister of parliament with the governing uh, servant of the People Party. Okay, so she was fired. Good. Step number two. Let's dig into why she was fired. So there is on June 10, the Euroweekly publishes update. Sacked Ukraine official exaggerated reports of sexual crimes by Russian soldiers. Okay. So we find in June that she exaggerated the report. So she was fired at the end of May. In June, we find that she exaggerated the reports. Now, the article is, in, is at the end of the June, June 29. On June 10, we already find that she exaggerated the reports. But on June 29, she's presented in the article as a credible source. Now, let's dig a little bit further. On June 27, so two days before the article got... By the way, the article is still like uh, the, with the original wording, it has not been changed. So it's uh, last time I checked was uh, I think at the end of December, I'm pretty sure that if we go now, uh, early January, it will be the same. The article had not been changed since the publication. Uh, but on June 27, Ukrainian news site, which is uh, an English language news site called Ukrainian News, citing Ukrainska Pravda, and Ukrainska Pravda is basically an equivalent of the New York Times in Ukraine. It's a highly re respected newspaper. So on June 27, Ukrainian sci news citing Ukrainska Pravda publishes, she made up stories about rape for victory of Ukraine. Media found out why Denisova was dismissed. Where we learn everything that we need to know about Denisova and Alexandra Kvitko, her daughter. Now, the fact that they're related is, is one thing, which is never mentioned anywhere, but it's an important fact. So, Kvitko claimed, and I'm, I'm now reading the English text of the thing. Kvitko claimed that in a month and a half, her hotline received about 1,040 calls, of which 450 related to child rape. However, the official extract received by the prosecutors indicated that only 92 calls had been received on the phone for the entire time. Prosecutors were unable to find confirmation of the stories that Kvitko and Denisova told, even when those stories had details that could help in the search for victims. Neither the ombudsman nor the psychologist could provide any evidence that these victims existed at all. During interrogation, Denisova said that the stories she told publicly she heard from her daughter. According to Kvitko, she told them to her mother during drinking tea. Off camera, Denisova explained that she told scary stories because she wants victory for Ukraine. Now, if we read the New York Times piece again, who claimed that there had been evidence gathered by prosecutors, while the Ukrainian media says that prosecutors were unable to find confirmation of the stories. So New York Times writes, the, writes this, uh, a strong implication, right? So this is the New York Times piece. To investigate rapes, prosecutors collect whatever physical evidence is available and take testimony from the victim. And, and that's a strong implication that actually everything that's written in the New York Times article is had been uh, verified by the prosecutors. But the Ukrainian media actually says that prosecutors were unable to find confirmation of the stories, even when those stories had details that could help in the search of victims. The number of calls completely does not match. Not not even the content of the calls, but the fact that that New York Times uh, says that that there had been fifteen hundred calls, when in fact the telephone records only show ninety was it ninety two calls had been received on the phone for the entire time. And and Kvitko and Denisva both actually admitted that they lied 
Like, completely made shit up. As for the link between Denisov and Quid Quality in UNICEF, and by extension Human Rights Watch, which is also part of the UN, there's the quote from the same article, there's the same um, uh, Ukrainian article. Journalists found out that in March, Lyudmila Denisova, with the support of UNICEF, launched an additional psychological support hotline to the existing one at the time. This line was dealt with by the psychologist Alexandra Kvitko, who is the daughter of Denisova. Now, I verified all of this in by reading the... The, the much more extended uh, Ukrainian article in, in Ukrainska Pravda, if you want, you can go there, use whatever Google's... Um, now, I read Ukrainian, of course, so I don't need to, to translate it, but you can use the Google Translate to just verify that they write the same. Uh, UNICEF had not gotten back to them uh, when asked for comments, right? So they actually asked, uh, because there's also some shady um, involvement of UNICEF and how Denisova... Uh, was able to bypass the conflict of interest by convincing UNICEF to hire her daughter rather than hiring her daughter on her own. So, so there is that nepotism angle, which which is also dodgy. Anyway, so the story uh, becomes even more strange when you consider that the story is written by two women who have a Russian and a Ukrainian surname. So working for the New York Times. And New York Times claims that they have a small army of on-the-ground uh, fact-checkers and so on in Ukraine. So these women, uh, the, the authors of the New York Times article, knew, because there's, there's a Euronews piece about the exaggeration and the firing of Denisova came 19 days before the New York uh, piece went to print. And uh, two days before it went to print, there's been a a huge rah-rah and, and an basically an English speaking, uh, an English language article, and then Ukrainian article, and there was a huge rah-rah in the uh, public forums in Ukraine, in Russia, in the media in Ukraine and Russia. I actually don't know about the media in Ukraine from the TV point of view, but obviously there's, there's been a huge rah-rah on social media and in the print media. Uh, the reason I don't know about the uh, TV media is because it's, by then it was all uh, controlled by Zelensky. But this story is not is, is huge news and obviously undermines the whole New York Times article. Now, why? Why publish when it's easily checkable lies, easily verifiable lies, admitted lies? Why publish them and present them as fact? Now, is it malice or is it incompetence? I'm leaning towards malice on this one, even though I usually prefer the incompetence theme uh, by using Henlon's razor, uh, which, which says never attribute to malice that which is inadequately explained by stupidity. But in this particular case, I think that the blunder is so grievous and it goes to the uh, journalism 101, it's just check your sources, that it could, could not have been a mistake. The article is written by Russian slash Ukrainian speaking ladies by all accounts, who are definitely connected. They did enough of the research to, to, to write about individual cases. Now, I have no doubt that individual cases of rape exist. Uh, it would be silly to discount them. Rape, which is a horrific thing, unfortunately exists during peacetime. We know it exists during wartime even more. So I do not discount the individual cases. But to present them as a mass scale with, with the, such graphic details as, as basically raping toddlers with candlesticks. So there was another story with like the, TV, you know, the teaspoon. Um, it, these are such horrific acts which were obviously all fabricated. This is what I do not appreciate because it's done with a specific purpose. It's, it's a smear campaign of the worst kind. Now, we also don't know who perpetrates uh, these rapes. We do know that Ukraine released convicted war criminals, rapists, torturers from prisons, gave them weapons and sent them to, to the front lines. So we know that Ukraine released convicted rapists from prisons convicted war criminals, so basically anybody who had military background and were in Ukrainian prisons, convicted of war crimes, including rape, we know that these were released 
into the wild. We also know that under the cover of the war, quite often what happens is that the local criminal elements are using the war for profit and to settle personal scores and to do whatever else. Yes, to steal, rape. So if a rape happens, it is not clear who was the perpetrator. And to assume that a professional standing army would be the perpetrator when they have a lot of other things to do rather than local criminal elements which exist or the convicted rapists which had been released well i think that's that's a strong presumption that needs proof and unfortunately in these cases it's really difficult to obtain unbiased proof uh, so it, it, it's really difficult. These are difficult cases, even under the best of times. So that's about the individual cases. But then using the allegations or presenting the, the mass, the massive scale as a fact, when you know that it's a lie, it's a fabrication. Well, okay, there's enough said about that. I don't want to belabor this, this point. More now, uh, part four is there, there is a history of New York Times nepotism and hit jobs, and um, here I relate to Balaji Srinivasan, who in a podcast called The Network Stage, just the Knowledge Project episode 134, uh, said certain things. Uh, he basically said he, he came out against New York Times in particular, but also against uh, the media overall as the arbiters of truth and says, we're labeling people that have acceptable or, uh, no, Shane, the host says, we're labeling people that have acceptable or unacceptable views in various forms. And Balaji says, well, when the establishment is trying to do is have a China style set of speech and thought controls without admitting that is what they're doing, or they just double talk about it. Uh, and so what they really want is something where they can talk, but you cannot. The guys who own newspapers have freedom of speech, and you do not. So the New York Times has tons of pieces like this. Uh, free speech is killing us. Uh, these are Salzburger employees. Sky Arthur, G. Salzburger, sixth-generation nepotist. Inherited the New York Times from his father's 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 father. Nobody ever writes about him because they're scared. So they write about Zuckerberg. But nobody writes uh, about Salzburg. Then Balji goes uh, on to say that, you know the diverse backgrounds interviewed uh, was three white male cousins for the top job, the New York Times. I said, read this article about A.G. Salzburg, 37, to take over the New York Times publisher. This article is written as a coronation of great leader. Salzburg employees will write these articles about how free speech is killing us and how actually you're not supposed to know to have free speech, only Salzburg employees are. If you say it, it's misinformation, but when the Salzburg employee says, you're supposed to bow. And they run these billboards that uh, actually literally proclaimed themselves to be the truth in 2017. Salzburg ran this ad campaign. This is the ad campaign that I referenced uh, before. Uh, the ad campaign is called The Truth. Back to Balaji. You remember that in 2017, the truth is hard to find, etc. Now, do you know what other newspapers uh, call itself the truth? Okay, here he's referencing the uh, Soviet newspaper Pravda, which is literally translates as the truth, except he says uh, that Salzburg basically, his innovation is that um, he charges 50 bucks for the truth, because at least Pravda was free. So you can sort of turn these corporate journalists to stone, by the way, when they're pretending to be all speaking truth to power, so you can tell them, okay, when are you going to write the big investigative journalism report on your boss? Okay? And then he continues, Balaji continues to say that they are hitmen for old money. And as I said, you can turn them to stone just by asking uh, them who is their owner. So why? Because whether consciously or unconsciously, they were either pretending to be decentralized or unaccountable or whatever in their own person. As soon as you ask them who's their boss, they go, oh, you cannot talk to them about my boss. And then you go, oh, you have a boss? How about that? Oh, it's so interesting. How uh, courageous oh, that you go and investigate your competitor, but not your boss. So you just hit it from the right angle, and uh, it looks completely different. 
they look like uh, corporate bonds. And then Abolji goes on to say that actually the only journalism is citizen journalism because that's independent, that's Substack, and so on and so forth. So you can read the the article where I do a bit more uh, snippets from from this. But basically, the, there are people coming out and saying stuff against the New York Times. So we've shown that New York Times lies. We've showed that uh, they can report balance. They can have relatively balanced reporting, but the, that reporting disappeared after um, February twenty twenty two. We also showed that New York Times participates in a concerted anti Russia campaign through the Russian disinformation and so on and so forth. And I do think that it's a concerted campaign against Russia. New York does not report against the head that feeds it. And we've also shown repetitive amplification of lies, such as Denisova's rape myths by, or fabrications by the Western media, not just New York Times. So why is it an important problem that requires action? Well, first of all, you cannot trust anybody. So that's a problem. Western media is not independent. Either consciously or subconsciously, they're not independent. They are a part of the propaganda machine. They lie. It's not just a purview of the Russian media or Chinese media or Iranian media or whatever. Western media is not independent. They do not act independently. The coverage of the Iraq or the second Iraq invasion, which was made purely on a fabrication of... By the, by the way, there were a lot of fabrications in the first Iraq invasion, but the second Iraq invasion that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, he was somehow related to September the 11th, both were lies, uh, led to a destruction of a country. There are pieces that investigated the media coverage. The media coverage back then was incredibly one-sided. There was apparently only 10% of media that were speaking out against the invasion. If you show... The one-sidedness, if you investigate the one-sidedness of the Western media right now, it's probably more than, there's not a single piece that is, that is not true. But, but it's much less than 1%. There are some pieces which are still critical of the, uh, trying to present an alternative view, but by and large, the media is probably 95 to 99% one-sided. And we've seen how the relative balance of the previous year's reporting changed. Now, all media lies, Russian media lies, Western media lies. To assume that the Western media is the only truth or the only objective media is to be a fool. So if they lie about really massive issues, if they lie so blatantly, so black and white, so ridiculously bluntly, what else do they lie about? Far from speaking truth to power, to me, they become a PR arm for those in power. Furthermore, liars cannot be trusted to lecture anyone on misinformation and disinformation. They just can't. Those that actively participate in misinformation and disinformation campaigns cannot throw stones at other people's glass houses. I mean, they can and they do, but you as a person should not be listening to them. Lies lead to manufactured consent for supporting policies that go against your, the electorate's, interests. So all of these reasons are why this is a problem. Lies by the likes of New York Times, the disinformation campaigns by the likes of New York Times and media in general, lead to manufactured consent for supporting policies that go against your best interests. And yes, that's also true in other countries. That's true in every country. But the Western, the prevalent Western self-reflection, or the lack thereof, the Western opinion of itself is that propaganda is something that happens in other countries, not to us. No, it happens to you too. It's even more insidious because you don't realize it. At least other countries, people in other countries know that their governments lie to them. They expect that, they understand it is all propaganda. By ignoring this, by thinking that the likes of New York Times do not participate in propaganda, this is way more insidious. So given this problem, what are we to do as individuals? 
And in the next episode, I'll give you a set of about a dozen uh, principles that I use to try to understand what's true and what's not. So there, there is good news. Thank you for listening. <laughs>